I'll be reading from 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1 to 6. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, live in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living and they heap abuse on you, but they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. Well, good morning, everyone. It's uh, great, to, uh, great to see you all and be here with you today. I'd like to uh, begin this morning by uh, making an apology to any dentists, dental assistants or orthodontists who may be present here this morning or who may be listening online later on. And that's because I need to point out the uncomfortable truth that none of us actually enjoy your company at least not on a professional level. No one I know looks forward to a dental appointment. Many of us do our best to avoid them, and some of us are absolutely terrified of sitting in that dreaded chair. And why is that? It's not because they are unpleasant people. It is because a visit to the dentist often involves pain and suffering. I mean, there's the needles, there's the drills, there's the extractions, there's the braces, and then at the end of it all, there's the bill. As nice as dentists may be, going to see them is often a harrowing experience. But then I ask you, why do we do it? Why do we choose of our own free will to go through such misery? Well, the reason, of course, is because we know that there's good reasons to put up with the pain. It's because we know that by having the offending tooth removed, getting that filling or implant, or by going through that lengthy orthodontic treatment, it will ultimately be for our good. And in the end, we will be more comfortable, we will look better, and we will feel healthier. And so we willingly go through the suffering because we know that it serves a valuable purpose. But, you know, I think we need to remember this when it comes to suffering as Christians too. As we've worked through 1 Peter in recent months, we've seen over and over that followers of Christ can expect troubles in their lives. Already in 1 Peter chapter 1, he described God's people as scattered exiles and said that we may have to experience grief in all kinds of trials. In chapter 2, he spoke of how people will accuse us of doing wrong and how we should submit to every authority, 
even when it hurts. In chapter 3, he told us that people will do evil toward us. They will insult, threaten and slander us. And as we've thought about these things, we've also considered how it increasingly reflects our own society. There was a time when Christians and their views were accepted and even respected in Australia. Then more recently, it's been a case of Christians being sidelined and seen as irrelevant and out of date. But now, my friends, we are starting to be seen as the bad guys, as the ones whose views are actually malicious, dangerous and evil. And so more and more we are at risk of being criticised and maligned, disadvantaged and cancelled, prosecuted and penalised. And the day may well come when we experience the same kinds of persecution that many other Christians face around this world. But just as with a visit to the dentist, we may well ask ourselves, why would we do it? Why would God want his people to willingly suffer for their faith? Why would we intentionally choose to compromise our comfortable lives in order to go through such misery? My friends, why would I, as a pastor, continue to preach the whole counsel of God, knowing that it could get me in trouble with the law, facing fines or even prison? Why would a Christian school continue to uphold God's standards, knowing that it might tarnish their reputation or jeopardise their funding? Why would a Christian business person stand up for what's right, knowing that their business could be boycotted and bankrupted? And why would you, why would you continue to live out and promote your faith, knowing that you could be disliked or shunned or disadvantaged in some way? And my friends, the answer is that we absolutely wouldn't unless we knew there was a valuable purpose. And so it is with that in mind that we want to approach the first six verses of 1 Peter 4 today. And so Peter begins here in verse 1 by pointing us back to Jesus. He says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Peter says, remember the anguish and the torment that was experienced by our Lord Jesus Christ. But what's he mean by that? Well, Peter's referring to the way that Jesus, the glorious Son of God, the the almighty creator of our universe, was willing to make himself nothing, being born as a human baby and, and growing up in this sinful world. He refers to the way that Jesus came, not to a life of privilege, but to resentment and threats right from the day he was born. He refers to the way that Jesus experienced temptations from the devil, demands from the crowds, misunderstanding from his friends, desertion from his followers and hatred from the authorities. My friends, Peter refers to the way that Jesus was ultimately hunted down and arrested, put on trial and convicted of false charges, mercilessly mocked and beaten, 
betrayed, denied, and abandoned, and finally brutally nailed to a wooden cross and left to die in the most shameful and excruciating way. Our Lord Jesus, Peter says, suffered in his body. But why? Why did he willingly put aside his glory in order to undergo such humiliation and misery and agony? No one would do that without reason. So what was his motive? Well, did you notice that Peter began with the word, therefore, pointing us backwards? And he's pointing particularly to chapter 3, verse 18, for, where it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. And my friends, here we find the purpose of his pain. Why did Jesus suffer? One, he suffered for sins. He suffered in order to take the penalty, bear the punishment, pay the price for human rebellion against God. Two, he suffered the righteous for the unrighteous. He suffered because he was the only one who was perfect and pure and thus able to give himself as an atoning sacrifice for those who are not. And three, he suffered to bring you to God. He suffered to remove that self-constructed barrier that we had put up that prevented us from knowing the love of our Creator in our lives here and now and in eternity forever. My friends, our Lord suffered because he was eager to save your soul, to purchase your forgiveness, to give you new life on this earth, and to have you with him in glory. And that's what he achieved for all who trust in him. And my friends, I surely hope that that's what you're doing, trusting in him. For Jesus suffered for your ultimate and eternal blessing. If only you would cling to him in faith. Jesus suffered to remove the curse and the consequences and the condemnation of your sin. And so his agony was no accident. It was not random or meaningless. He was not forced to undergo the pain that he experienced. But yet he chose to do so for an incredibly valuable purpose. Christ suffered in his body to defeat sin. But that then brings us to our response. For Peter says, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. Peter's saying here, well, Jesus willingly suffered for good reason. And so should you. He's saying Jesus suffered in order to defeat sin. And so should you. For whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. But what's that mean? What's he getting at? We've already established that it was when Jesus suffered, he was suffering for our sin, completely paying for our transgressions. And as a result, we are now righteous in God's sight. So how can we also suffer for sin when Jesus already has? Well, my friends, this is a very important point. 
You see, our Lord Jesus dealt with the condemnation of our sin. Because of him, we are totally forgiven, saved and set free. But yet we all know how we continue to struggle with the reality of sin in our lives every single day. And so our calling, Peter says, is to deal not with the condemnation of sin, because that has been done, but to deal with the control of sin over our lives. As Peter says, if we're willing to suffer, then we're done with it. But what does that look like? It doesn't mean that we can totally eradicate sin from our lives, that we become perfect. The Bible makes it clear that we will never reach that point, this side of heaven. But what it does mean is that sin is no longer the boss. We're no longer under its dominion. And in fact, we are repulsed by it and we fight it with all our strength. The Apostle Paul speaks about this in Romans chapter 6. He says, what then shall we say? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And later he adds, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. And a little later on, he concludes saying, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself as an instrument of righteousness for sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under law but under grace. Do you see? The reason we should be willing to suffer is because we long to deal with the sin in our lives. We long to deal not with its condemnation, for that has been done, but with its control over us. And Peter goes on to describe this in more detail. In verse 2, he says, As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. You see, my friends, before we were saved, we were living for evil human desires. That was totally normal and natural for us. We lived for ourselves. We lived for our cravings. We lived for power and pleasure and popularity. But when Jesus took hold of us, we received his Holy Spirit and everything changed. From that point onward and for the rest of our days, we would be striving to kill off those old ways and to devote ourselves to living for our Saviour. This became our new normal, to put ourselves in the background and to focus on the will of our God. But then Peter goes into even more detail. In verse 3, he says, For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing and detestable idolatry. 
And in verse 4, he speaks of their reckless and their wild living. Here, Peter is providing a damning description of the society of his day. He speaks of sexual immorality. He speaks of overindulgence in alcohol. He speaks of gratuitous violence. And he speaks of misdirected worship. And we may read these words and we might think to ourselves, will they surely reflect another time? We may think that today in our highly advanced society that we've moved on from such sordid and primitive ways. But have we? I mean, we live in an age where sexual immorality is commonplace. Our TV screens are full of it. Nudity, sex scenes and adult themes. Modern music is littered with the lewd and the suggestive. The internet is jam-packed with pornography, soft and hard, with no end to its depravity. And much of this involves the objectification and the abuse of women. But somehow our society convinces itself that it's actually empowering to them instead. And then the fantasy is increasingly lived out in reality. For traditional marriage is becoming more and more despised. And instead, we see that promiscuity and adultery and one-night stands and friends with benefits and prostitution and, and every kind of sexual perversion is not only accepted, but it is celebrated. And we believe the myth that it's all okay, so long as no one gets hurt. And then there's overindulgence in alcohol. Is that a thing of the past? If only that were true. How many lives, how many relationships, how many careers are still being ruined by alcohol, by drunkenness, by binging? How often is it a factor in road accidents and other injuries, in health conditions, both physical and mental, in premature death? Of course, today, alcohol is tame compared to the misery caused by other forms of drug addiction. But yet we're less and less willing to condemn these things, conveniently ignoring the harm. And what of gratuitous violence? Surely this is an area that we're stamping out in our society. But yet somehow domestic violence and rape and assault are on the rise. And we happen to ignore the violence done against the unborn with abortion and the violence done against the aged and unwell with euthanasia. And finally, Peter also mentioned misdirected worship, what he calls detestable idolatry. And that's no less an issue today than it was back then. At the very same time in our country, we see growth in false religions of every kind, but also growth in materialism and the worship of self. It seems there is no end to the idols people put in the place of the one true God. But the point Peter is making is that as God's people, we should be done with sins like these, even if it's hard, even if it hurts. He says we've spent enough time doing those terrible things. How could we now continue? And so we won't let them rule over us. They will not be our master. And while we still fail, 
we do so with remorse, with repentance, and with a determination to overcome. But as we ponder these pointed examples in this text, we have no choice but to ask ourselves, are we actually done with sin? Have we truly understood the gravity of Christ's suffering, which has freed us from its condemnation? And are we determined to cooperate with the Holy Spirit, who seeks to empower us to be free from sin's control? For the reality is that some people think that they're Christians, but but yet clearly they're not done with sin. They're full of justifications and excuses. But at the end of the day, they simply love their own sin more than they love God. And so they live their lives for human desires and not for the Lord. They continue to spend time doing exactly what the world does. And as a result, they take the easy way out. Are you like that? Sexual immorality, pornography, lewd talk, lewd music, ungodly sexual relationships? Or is it alcohol? Or is it violence? Is it worshipping worldly things more than God? Peter says, if you're a true Christian saved by his grace, then you're done with these things. They will not be your master, even if you suffer as a result. But perhaps you're wondering to yourself, how does living for God's will and striving to defeat sin cause us to suffer? Well, the first reason is seen in the striving itself, isn't it? Because, my friends, it's really hard. It's really hard to put our old natures to death, to break the shackles of sin. You wouldn't be human if you haven't experienced the ache of temptation, the pain of self-discipline, the heartache of failure, the shame of confession, and the burden of trying again. But how much harder it is when we do this in our own strength, And so we we need to bring these struggles to our Lord. And we need to ask him to give us all that we need, the strength and the determination to break those patterns and to indeed see him transforming our lives. But there's another reason why living for God brings suffering and Peter speaks of it in verse 4. For he says, they are surprised that you do not join with them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. You see, my friends, Peter is presuming here, first of all, that we as Christians are people living in the real world, that we don't cloister ourselves away, having no contact with unbelievers. And so that's something to think about for a start. But Peter also presumes that upon our conversion, there is such a a radical change in our behaviour that it's blatantly obvious to everyone who knows us. And that too is something to contemplate, as far too many Christians look so similar to the world that no one can even tell the difference. But then building on these two presumptions, Peter says that the pagans... The unbelievers in our lives, they will be surprised 
when we don't join in with their reckless, wild living. They might be surprised because we used to join in, but now we don't do it anymore. Or they may be surprised because, well, everyone's doing these things. So why wouldn't we join in as well? But Peter says their surprise quickly turns to abuse. And why? Well, it's because by our words and actions, we are communicating the fact that there's actually something wrong with what they do. That it's not acceptable in God's sight. And I'm not talking about here about us being judgmental or self-righteous, but by our simple desire to live not for evil human desires, but for the will of God, we highlight others who do not. And the person who lives without God does not want to see it, hear it, or think about it. And so they will, ab they will heap abuse on us. And if you're living for the Lord, well, well, then you may have experienced it in your life. But isn't this also what we see in so many of the hot issues of today? If you try to suggest that abortion is wrong, no matter how sympathetically you do so, you will be abused. If you say that homosexuality is not God's plan, no matter how much you love those who struggle with it, you will be abused. If you speak up on issues of gender, no matter how respectfully, you will be abused. But Peter provides us with a reassuring reminder in verses 5 and 6. He says, but they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. He says, those who abuse you, well, in the end of the day, they're only hurting themselves because one day they are going to stand before the Lord and the Lord will impart justice and he will make everything right. But Peter also says, for this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. Here Peter explains that even those believers who have already died, even though they may have been abused in this world, even if they were killed for their faith, they will be vindicated. For while the world condemned them, the Lord loved them and the Lord saved them and they will be raised to eternal life. And my friends, this knowledge can sustain us when we suffer for our faith when we suffer for doing good. And so as we finish this morning, we need to remember the lesson of the dentist chair. No one suffers willingly without a good reason. And in this passage, Peter reminds us that the reason why we should be willing to suffer is for the Lord. He reminds us that Christ that Christ chose to suffer on that cross, to pay for our salvation, to defeat the condemnation of sin for all who believe. But we are now called to arm ourselves with the very same attitude. We are called to willingly suffer in our daily lives in order to defeat sin as well. But in our case, it's not the condemnation of sin 
but it is the control that it has over us. And so I ask you, just as I ask myself, am I done with sin? Is it no longer my master? Am I living the rest of my life not for evil human desires, but in actual fact, for the glorious will of God? Am I done with debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing and detestable idolatry? Am I genuinely and sincerely fighting the sin in my life? And am I willing to do so, even when it makes me different to the world around me, and I'm abused, and I suffer as a result. It's not easy. There's no doubt about that, but don't forget, it's not meaningless. It brings us closer to our God. And don't forget that we are not alone. Our gracious Lord Jesus is on our side, and he will empower us by his Spirit. And one day he is going to return when he will make everything right and he will make all things new. So my friends, let's keep on striving with our focus on him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we don't like to think about suffering for the gospel, but Lord, we pray that we might be heartened this morning and motivated as we remember that it's not random and it's not meaningless, but that it has a purpose in your plan. Father, help us to remember and to comprehend and to to just believe in our hearts how Jesus was willing to suffer so terribly for us and that he did that to take away the condemnation of our sin. And Father, help us to be ready to suffer for him as we seek to overcome the control of sin in our lives. Lord, please give us resolve to live for you, our loving Saviour, our powerful King, and the one who cares for us both now and for all eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.